to Romans chapter number 8 tonight. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 18. Now, if you're a student of the Word of God, you know we're sort of jumping into the middle of uh, one of Paul's great discourses. We know it's the Holy Ghost that said it, but Paul penned it. And uh, that relates to the topic of walking in the Spirit of God in Romans chapter number 8. In in chapter number 6 and, and in chapter number 7, Paul warns against allowing sin to have influence and bondage and, and, and reign in our life. And chapter number 80 begins to deal with how exactly we walk in the Spirit of God and the importance of it. Verse number 18, he's sort of bringing from this point on all of this to, to a culmination before he moves on to some other issues in chapter number 9. And he says in verse 18, for I reckon, he was a southerner, somebody say amen to that, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit, itse- the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. He that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good uh, to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. We thank you for the Word of God, the holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant, preserved Word of God that we hold in our hands. I pray that you, your Spirit, Father, would wield His sword, that He would do an eternal work in our hearts and minds. I pray that this message, Lord, would find a landing place in ready hearts this evening, and that we gain much encouragement. Lord, we need encouragement in these days. God's people have always needed encouragement. 
But it seems, Father, that as the world just presses more and more, that there is the greater need that God's people find comfort and encouragement in Your Word. And I pray You give it to us tonight for Your glory, for Your honor. Lord, we love You and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to preach to you tonight on this thought, the foundations of joy. As I said a moment ago, that I don't believe there has been a time in, in my short pastorate or even in my life, what I can remember of it, when the, uh, the joy of God's people has been eroded the way that it is today. If you merely step back and look at human interactions, and this includes God's people, I believe that that we ought to look at everything through the lens of spiritual truth. And there's a lot that we could say about why society seems to be rattling apart all around us. And that the Bible speaks to those things, informs those things. You take God, hey listen, the book of Colossians says that by Him all things consist. You hear me? They consist. That means they hold together. That means you take him out of the mix, things are going to start falling apart. And that's what we're seeing in society today. They've ripped the foundations of biblical truth and thought out from underneath our Western society and civilization. And, and as this world reels and rocks, we're seeing the, the bolts start to fall out of the machine and things are, are beginning to fall out of place. But even in the midst of that, I, I understand that as uh, members of, of the body of Christ, that in many ways, though we're in the world, we're not of the world, we're, we're, we're apart a uh, completely and wholly separate and different and distinct from the world. By the same token, you and I, we walk through this world. And as such, as the world seems to be shaking and trembling, the church is doing the same thing. And the sad reality is, as joy is eroding from society at large, and it is, man, everybody's just in a bad mood anymore. Amen? I mean, listen, you'd be walking down the street, you're wearing the wrong hat, somebody hits you in the face. You'd be walking down the street wearing the wrong shirt. Somebody just uh, come up and, and, and throw some liquid on you or, or, or stab you or shoot you. I mean, society doesn't even know how to function anymore. And we're walking in a state of perpetual rage. And as that is the case, I fear that for a lot of God's people, their joy is being eroded. Just as any semblance of happiness, peace, or contentment that the world could have at one time claimed is being eroded away from them. And just to to put it as frank and simply as I know how, it just seems like God's people have a hard time being happy sometimes. Again, I think a lot of this is due to the uh, ever-infectious nature of society and social media and 24-hour news cycle and just all this stuff. You didn't know the world had all these problems till you got cable news, did you? And there's this constant state... And I feel like a lot of us were allowing that to rob our joy. We walk around acting like God's done fell off of His throne, like the devil's won, like this whole thing's over. And we forget sometimes that as Paul says in this passage, we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. Listen, we don't, we don't just come out on the winning side of this. And I believe we are on the winning side. Amen? Let me try that again. I believe we are on the winning side of this thing. I've read the back of the book, my friend. The king is coming back. We're on the win, but we're not just on the winning side. We get to win with joy in our hearts if we'll remember the things that Paul 
mentions in this chapter, I see three things just by way of introduction that I think are robbing us of our joy in this day that we live in. Look back at verse 18. Paul says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Let me say number one, I believe that the spiritual warfare, the suffering that is so present in the life of God's people that are trying to live for Him, is one of the things that if we're not careful, we can allow to rob us of our joy. The fact is, if you purpose in your heart to live for the Lord, the devil's not going to let you do that easily. He's going to put a target on your back. He's going to try to blow up your relationship with your church family, with uh, godly friends, with people that God's put around you. He's going to do everything he can to try to pull you away, isolate you, and rob you of your joy. And the fact of the matter is, there are times when just just trying to live right, do right, and be right, if we're not careful, we can grow weary in well-doing. We need to be careful because in that, sometimes we get our eyes on what we're having to contend with and we miss what it is that we're accomplishing in living for the Lord. I don't ever want it to be said, I'm raising two boys, I don't want it to ever be said growing up that they never saw the joy of the Lord in our home. Listen, there's battles, there's hard things. When you're a pastor, you experience challenges and warfare and battles and stuff. But I want my kids to grow up knowing it's a joyful thing to serve the Lord. I want them to grow up knowing that you're going to have more fun serving God than you would ever serving the devil or the world. And it doesn't mean that it's a life that is that is frivolous. It doesn't mean it's a life of, of indulging childish pleasures. But it means that there is a deeper sense of abiding joy in being in the will of God and doing the will of God than the world could ever offer. I want my kids to grow up seeing that, knowing that. Let me say not only the, the warfare that we're engaged in, but look at verse 19. The Bible says this, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now, lest we wonder what he's talking about, he says down in verse number 22, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. I've got to be careful. We spent 77 weeks teaching through the book of Romans in our Sunday school class. So I've got to be careful or else we'll get in the weeds here in a second because I'm used to going through Romans like that. But let me say this, that the wickedness of the world is something that can rob us of our joy. Consider what Paul says here. Verse number 20. The creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. He goes on to explain this in verse number 24. He says, For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? You know what Christians are doing today? They're sitting around and getting mad at the world for acting like the world. We look around, and listen, there is a certain level of righteous indignation that I believe ought to reside within the spirit of a child of God. Even the Lord Jesus, when He saw that they had changed the temple into a den of thieves, He braided the cord, He turned over the tables, He drove out the money changers. There are certain things that should turn our stomach. There are certain things that should ignite in us a holy rage. But I fear that one of the things that we're giving into, and you're seeing this with our politics today, 
Uh, you're seeing it with social media today. Uh, you know what most people are addicted to today? Most people, they're not addicted to crack cocaine, opioids, heroin. There's a lot of folks hooked on all that. They're not addicted necessarily to, uh, to, to meth. They're not addicted to alcohol. There's a lot of folks addicted to that. But you know what more people are addicted to? Impotent, meaningless rage at things that are outside the purview of our control. Now, this isn't popular. Because the thing that's popular to say is, hey, we all need to, cha- to, to charge the ramparts and we all need to get a petition uh, together and we all need to make our voices heard. I-, I believe that there is a place for that. But I believe that you'll have a lot more joy in the Lord if you'll recognize what God has placed within the scope of your influence and of your capacity and of your control and recognize that the world is going to keep being the world until the King of Peace sits on His throne in Jerusalem. It's just going to keep being that way. And as we look, I mean, I've been outraged. I've looked at that evil, pure, unadulterated, abominable evil that has taken place in in New York State this last week. And guess what? Now it's in Vermont, and now it's in Virginia. The governor of Virginia said today, said today, you say, well, preacher, you're paranoid if you think they're going to start just killing babies after they're born. The governor of Virginia said today, said that if a, that the way this thing ought to happen is that the baby be born, be set aside, be made comfortable. That was his words, made comfortable, resuscitated if the family wants the baby resuscitated, and then a discussion needs to take place between the doctors and the mother and the father. And then, if they still don't want the baby, then they can abort. It ain't. It's murder from the moment of conception... But I don't see how even somebody that ain't got a, that ain't got God within a million miles of their heart, I don't see how somebody could ever rationalize that that baby sitting on that table is anything other than a life, a baby. That's infanticide. You, you understand, we are a heartbeat. We are a heartbeat away from euthanizing people that we deem to be undesirable. Let me give you another word, deplorable. I'm saying we're on dangerous territory. And I get it. It is tempting to breathe that in all the time and let it light fires of rage in your heart. And there is a place for that. God's people ought to be outraged by the wickedness of the world. I'll tell you what they shouldn't be. They shouldn't be surprised by it. This whole world groans, travails. And it's going to keep doing that. Don't you see that God, He created this world in a, in a state of perfection, but He could have, after sin touched it, He could have wiped it away. Instead, He instituted a plan of redemption. I hate to use that term, instituted. It was instituted before the world was ever created. But you know what I mean. God has a plan, and it's not to leave this world in the present condition that it's in. The creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, not because man chose it, but because God has a greater plan. Am I right? And I think if we look at the wickedness of the world all the time, I don't, I don't advocate that we stick our heads in the sand. I don't advocate that we pretend the world's better than what it is. I advocate that we quit pretending that the world is anything but what it is. It's a world full of lost, depraved individuals, just like you and I were before we got born again. And the world's going to keep doing what it does. And we need to be careful or else we'll allow the wickedness of the world to rob us of the joy that we have in the Lord. We don't have to bury our head in the sand, but if we can get our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, then we can be both conscious of the wickedness of the world, but confident in the plan and purposes of God and rest in the joy that we have in Him. Let me give you a third thing. Look at verse 23. The Bible says, and not only they, 
not only they. So he's been talking about creation. And he's been saying that creation is, is, is made and it, it, it exists. We should say it that way. It was made in a state of perfection, but because of sin, it exists now in a state of imperfection. That hasn't surprised God. That hasn't caught God off guard. God has a plan to redeem the, the earth, redeem creation, the same way that he has a plan to redeem your body and my body at the resurrection. But then he says this, not only they, not only the world, but we ourselves. Also, we which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. Now, <clears throat> we understand when the Lord Jesus died on the cross, He did not just die to, to pay for our sins. He did not just die to purchase our soul and spirit, but He, He paid it all. Amen? Our body included. And Paul will go on in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to lay out in great detail this, this principle that Christ is, has already redeemed our soul and spirit and He's paid the redemption for our body. But one of these days at the resurrection, our body will be raised incorruptible in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the rapture, and we'll be given a glorified body. Paul also says our vile body be made like unto His glorious body. But until then... Until then, we still have to walk and exist and live and function in this sin-cursed body. Paul says, because of that, we groan. Now, if you're young, you may not know what that means. But the older you get, the more you begin to realize, get out of bed and you groan. Get up from your chair and you groan. You sit down in your chair and you groan. And our body is not, and I, again, i got to be careful, I'll be in the weeds here in a second. We don't really know, until we have a glorified body, what the word rest means. We are locked daily. Every believer is locked daily in a constant battle between the old man and the new man. But one of these days, when this body of sin has been eradicated, when it's been changed, when it's been transformed, and when we exist in a body that has no inclinations to do contrary to what the Lord Jesus wants. We'll know what rest really truly is. But until that time, we have to deal with weariness. Let me say that weariness can rob you of your joy in the Lord. It can. Sometimes folks just get tired. Right now, this time of year, it's especially true. Listen, that right now there's folks that have been sick for a month, two months at a time. And they're growing weary. And I understand that that weariness is a hard thing to bear. But you need to guard carefully in the midst of that weariness that your joy does not become robbed from you. I believe in this passage, Paul gives three things that we need in order to, to shore up or in order to fortify the foundations of joy that we have. And I think we have all three of these things in verses 28, 29, and 30. I want you to notice them with me very quick and then we'll close. Verse number 28. Paul's, and, and you could probably throw in there, I've not done it, but you could probably throw in there verses 26 and 27. We'll begin at verse 28. Paul says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Once you notice what he says, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm backing up a little bit. I hope that's okay. But I want you to look down at verse number 31. Paul says, what shall we say then to these things? To what things? To the things that he's just mentioned. To, all, to, to, the, to the sufferings of this present world, to the groaning and travailing that is, that is natural for us in our unglorified body. What shall we say to all these, to the wickedness in the world as it rocks and reels and that the heathen rage? What shall we say to all these things? He says, this is what we say to him. 
If God be for us, who can be against us? And he's speaking not only of those things that we mentioned, but also of the three things I'm going to give you. Let me give you the first of them. Verse 28, remember, in the midst of this joyless world that we're living in, remember the providence of God. He says, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And I I, I jotted this down. Our bad things turn out for good. You walk through this world long enough, you're going to have to experience some bad things. Listen, I've sat beside the, the bedside of folks that were dying far too early before their time. You've heard me say this a hundred times, but God taught me a lesson very early in ministry. The first two funerals, and I've preached I don't know how many hundreds of funerals since then, but the first two funerals I ever preached, the first one was of a 75-day-old infant. And the next one was of my grandfather that died in a ripe old age. And God taught me that death is no respecter of persons. I've sat beside folks that without any explanation, without any reasoning behind it, the life of a child, of a loved one has been ripped and stripped away from them. I've sat beside people who have lived and been the picture of health that have had to hear the word cancer all of a sudden dropped into the middle of their existence. I've sat down in emergency rooms with people whose loved ones have just perished and died. I've seen some ugly things in life. I've sat and counseled and talked with folks that thought they had a happy marriage and then all of a sudden things blew up. In this life, you're going to deal with some bad things. Anybody that tells you otherwise is lying to you. You live long enough, you're going to have some distasteful, bad things in life. And it's easy when those things happen to allow it to rob our joy. How many of you, I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, but I will just ask you to confirm it in your heart. How many of you have known people that they were perfectly pleasant and then all of a sudden tragedy came? They became bitter, they became ugly, they became cynical, and it robbed them of any joy that they had. As a believer, we have an ironclad truth from the Lord that can shield us against that danger. I didn't say it would shield you from bad things. Go through the scriptures and you'll find time and time and time again God's people suffering, sometimes unjustly it would seem from the outside looking in. God God dedicated the entire book of Job to the topic of seemingly unjust, uncalled for, unearned human suffering. Bad things will come. And God's providence doesn't shield us from bad things, but it does shield us from the bitterness that can arise from bad things by recognizing that even our bad things in life, because of the providence of God, turn out for good. Notice these two truths here. Paul speaks of the scope of God's providence. He says all things. All things. Not just some things. Not just the things you can figure out. But all things work together for good to them that love God. I'll tell you this. There's times it's not easy to find comfort in that verse. There's times, many times in life, in fact, I would say this, that most of the time when you need that verse, you're going to have to approach it by faith. Most of the time when you need that verse, you're going to have to approach it by faith because you won't be able to find any good in your circumstances. One of the hardest things in life is, and, and I, again, something I learned very early on, when you, when you go to a funeral, somebody's lost a loved one, if you've not been where they're at, don't tell them you know what they're going through. It's insulting. It is. 
we've been through things in our life that some of y'all have never been through and vice versa. And we do not have to rely upon our own credentials for empathy to comfort people in the midst of their loss. The reason why is because we have a high priest which can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, who's experienced and felt everything that we might ever go through. He's been tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. And sometimes there is a tendency to only want to quote these verses when we can draw a straight line between the event and the good that will come out of it. But I got news for you. God's providence is true even when you can't figure it out. I I would guarantee this. Of all the good that God brought out of the book of Job, or the suffering of Job, probably the greatest has been the book of Job. And to our knowledge... So, hey, listen, I don't know who it was that gave all the first-hand information in the book of Job. The Holy Ghost don't need anybody to give testimonial. God knows. God was present there. But I would say this. At least somebody other than Job must have recorded some portions of the book of Job. So how do you know that? Because Job's death is recorded. Now, listen, I, I, if you intend on singing at your own funeral, i got bad news for you. I believe in you. There's a lot you can do in life, but you probably can't pull that one off. Somebody recorded the end of the book of Job. We have no particular reason to believe that Job recorded all of the book of Job. It is quite possible that Job never even knew there was or would be a book of Job. In the midst of all of his sufferings, you probably could have never made Job believe that the greatest thing God would do in his sufferings would be what God did through his suffering. You are rarely going to understand what God's doing in your life. There are these glimpses where we have a clear understanding of what God's trying to do, and that that lulls us into a belief that we can have God figured out about everything. But in the midst of suffering, when you need this verse, you're probably going to have to take it by faith. You're probably not going to be able to see how any good could come out of it. And that's why you need the verse. All things. Not just some, not just the things we can figure out, not just the things that make sense, but all things work together. That's not me saying it, that's God saying it. Say, preacher, explain to me how X, Y, or Z is going to come out. I can't, nor do I have to. God made this promise. And we can choose in the midst of our suffering to either respond and recline upon that promise, or we can choose to dismiss and discard it and continue in our bitterness and our discontentment. We have the choice. God is not a cruel God. He doesn't waste suffering and pain. You understand how highly God values suffering and pain? That in His greatest expression of love to humanity, He gave the sacrifice of His Son. You understand how highly God values suffering and pain. Not in that God enjoys it, but in that God recognizes, He empathizes. God, He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. There's nothing God's going to put you through that He hasn't gone through and won't go through with you. So He doesn't waste suffering and pain. You may look at it and say, I can't see any sense in this thing. And that's not surprising. The same thing's true of me. But it doesn't change the fact that God is not a cruel God. And if He's got you going through it, He must have a plan in it. I see the scope of God's providence, but I see the sense in God's providence. He says they work together. 
Sometimes the reason we can't understand what's going on in our life is because God's doing some things that we don't even know nothing about. Job is another good example of this. You and I are blessed with something when we examine Job's circumstances that Job never had. You know what it is? The first two chapters of the book of Job. Now, you've heard me say this. This won't be, if you've listened to my preaching, this won't be anything new to you. But we know, we start out the book of Job, basically we started out with a conversation in heaven between God and the devil. And we started off with the devil saying, I've been running this world, I've been walking to and fro, I've been doing anything that I've wanted to do. And God's the one that brings up Job's name. It says, have you considered my servant Job? Isn't it interesting that God was the one that brought his name up? God could have brought anyone's name up. Before you go to blame your suffering on some other person, some other Christian, some other influence or force in your life, you might first stop and consider that it could be that this thing's ordained of God and that God has a purpose you don't even understand in it. God brought his name up. Has thou considered my servant Job? And the devil says, well, there's, of course he serves you. You're good to him. But listen, if you put your hand against him, and if you take away all those things, he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord says, all right, I'll take that. I'll take that challenge. I know my servant. I know what he'll do. You and I have the benefit of this. Job never did. Job never, to our knowledge, knew about that conversation. When God shows up at the end of the book of Job, he doesn't say, surprise, You've been on candid camera, Job. We've been watching you from the beginning. Me and the devil been sitting here and we've had a, we've had a bit of a challenge going, but you have just behaved admirably. Thank you, Job. Here is your reward. No, Job never knew about any of that. Sometimes our problem is we see only one element of what God's doing in our life, but the things in our life, they work together. Sometimes God's doing things we can't even fathom. Sometimes He's doing things outside of the scope of our vision and perception. And until we see the other side of it... Now, you've heard this, I'm sure, a hundred times. But you, you've, you've probably heard about the little boy that was sitting beside his mother as she was in church and she was working on needlepoint. I guess that's what women used to do before they checked Facebook and balanced their checkbooks when they didn't want to listen to preaching. But she was doing needlepoint. And he looks up and he sees this tangled mess of threads. And he thinks, what a train wreck. I can't believe she's going to hang that on our wall. And then she, the little boy climbs up in his mother's lap and sees it from the other side. And sees a beautiful display of two birds. Now, you know, you've heard this. I've said it. I'm sure you've heard other people say it. That one of these days we're going to see the other side of the tapestry. There's things God's doing that we don't know about. But we can maintain our joy in the Lord if we'll remember the providence of God. That even the worst things in our life, God will bring good out of them. It's interesting because the Bible doesn't say that God takes our bad things and they become good. He says that He takes our bad things and works them out for good. In other words, it may not be that God's going to show up in your situation and immediately change everything. It might be that it won't be till you get to heaven and look backwards, but you can rest in this, that your suffering is not senseless. God has a providential plan in it. Look at verse 29. Paul says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. A lot of folks are scared of this verse. Uh, They're scared of it because Calvinists have used it to say something that the Bible doesn't say. Uh, I would tell you this, that you can't become a Calvinist by reading the Word of God. You become a Calvinist by reading other Calvinists. (laughs) You don't become one by reading the Word of God. If we just take God at what He says in this verse, we understand it has nothing to do with God choosing who's going to go to heaven and who's going to go to hell. Because God doesn't do that. God's willing to save any and all that come unto Him. What did God say here? Whom He did foreknow. Now, do we believe in the foreknowledge of God? I do. I believe God knows all things. I believe there's only one bit of information that is withheld from even only one part of person, I guess we should say, not a part, but one person of the Trinity. And that is the time of Christ's return. Christ himself doesn't know. Don't ask me to explain that. When we get to heaven, come find me, I'll explain it to you. But until then, you're just going to have to wait like the rest of us. But I believe beyond that one very unique fact and and situation, God knows all things. God has always known all things. In fact, I think there is a great argument to be made because creation is the expression of God's knowledge, right? He spoke creation into existence. I, I would almost go as far, almost, maybe I'll get nerve enough before the end of the sermon to go this far, but I would almost go as far as saying that there's nothing that can exist outside of the knowledge of God. Because existence is merely the expression of God's knowledge in the first place. There's nothing that could be outside of God's knowledge. You say, well, the Bible says there's sins and iniquities, well, I remember no more. Yeah, I understand that, but that's not saying God forgets about them. It's saying He judicially chooses to never bring them up again. God knows all things. You say, does God know who's going to accept Him or who, who doesn't? He wouldn't be God if He didn't know that. But now the question is, does He choose for them? The Bible never says here or anywhere else that God chooses heaven or hell for people, chooses to receive or reject Jesus Christ for people. But it does say he does predestinate something. What does he predestinate? For whom he did foreknow. The people that he knows are going to accept him. He has predestinated what? For them to be saved? No, that's not what the Bible says. Don't say something the Bible don't say. What has he said? He predestinated them to be conformed to the image of His Son. In other words, all those that God knows will choose to receive Christ as their Savior. After they've been saved, God has determined, has predestinated that the end result of the working of God in their life is that they will be like Jesus Christ. He didn't predestinate them to heaven or hell. He predestinated that those that chose Christ would one day be like Christ. And it reminds me of this. We need to remember the providence of God. Number two, we need to remember the permanence of God's working. And I jotted this down. Not only do we need to remember that our bad things turn out for good, our worst things even turn out for good, but we also need to remember that our good things can't be lost. One of the great sources of anxiety in the life of a person is the fear of losing the things they love. This is part of the reason that that when you have a family, when you have children, it creates a great vulnerability and a sense of vulnerability often in parents. is because now they know, man, they have this fragile little life and it's constantly trying to swallow things that can kill it and jump off high things and, and, and do just ridiculous, absurd things evil Knievel would tremble at. And there's a great sense of vulnerability. You don't want to lose that thing. And if you ask any parent what their greatest fear in life is, most of them would tell you it would be to lose one of my children. 
be to lose one of my children. No matter how old they are, it'd be to lose one of my children. As a Bible believer, we need to recognize this, that the best things, the good things that we have in life are things that cannot be lost. Was it Jim Elliott that said that a man would be a fool, a fool, to not trade, if he would not trade, things that he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And as a believer, when we invest in eternity with our time, our talents, our tithes, we're investing in things we cannot lose. I'm going to give you two things, although I could give you a lot more. First, our relationship to the Savior is something we cannot lose. Look again what he says here. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. When you got born again, you became a brother or sister of Christ. One or the other, not both. Somebody say amen to that. And that relationship to Jesus Christ, that position that we have in Him, is something that neither flame nor flood nor the forces of hell can touch. I believe in the eternal security of the believer. I believe in it because the Bible teaches it. (laughs) And I believe in it because it's the only thing that makes sense if you consider the body of theological truth that is presented in Scripture. There are a lot of things in life that you may lose that I can't promise you you won't lose. Uh, Listen, there's folks this week, and really I, I could say this, there's folks, Christians, that I know of in the past month that have lost everything they own in house fires. Everything they own. Uh, all the pictures, all of the mementos, not to mention all of the monetary things that in a moment are just burned up. I could tell you stories of people that have lost children over the past few months. I could, and it's not any great secret, but uh, I could tell you about one of our missionary families, the Vandenherks, who, by the way, pray for them. They're about 28 weeks along with their next child. But they tried for years and years and years to have kids. And finally, God blessed them with a baby boy named David. And uh, everything was going swimmingly with the pregnancy. And uh, during delivery, something went wrong. I don't even know if they, ever, if they even still know what went wrong. But the baby was stillborn. And it was a devastating loss. Devastating. There are things that can be robbed from you in this life. But the greatest things... The things that are of eternal value. And by the way, one of the things I love about the book of Job is about the entire Word of God is the consistency of God in His Word. You look at the book of Job, the Bible goes to the end of the book of Job and says that God gave Job back double everything that he lost. Double everything that he lost. Except a wife and, and his kids. One, we have no reason to believe he necessarily lost his wife. But with his children, you know why? I believe Job's children were saved. And he didn't need double. God gave him back more children. But God didn't give him double the children that he had initially. Why? Because he didn't lose those first children. They was at home in heaven with the Lord. And the Vandenherks didn't lose that little boy. Me and my wife have been through a miscarriage. We didn't lose our baby. And others that have experienced that. But many of the things in life, we will lose our joy if we're not careful because of how fragile life is. But we need to be reminded that the things that matter the most in life are things that cannot be taken from the believer. Our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've been born again, you couldn't go to hell now if you tried. And then number two, 
our resources from the Savior. That's really at the heart of what he's saying here in verse 29. He has predestinated those that he foreknow to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, how does that happen? I could go on, I, I could quote a lot of verses, but the Bible makes clear that uh, as many as believed on him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God. And Paul himself later on, and said, uh, later on in this very passage uh, said that, uh, verse 14, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. The way we become Christ-like is by following the leading of the Spirit of God, by the outer working, inner working, and then outer working of the power and influence of the Spirit of God in our lives as we yield to his leading. And those resources that we have spiritually to become Christ-like and to be Christ-like and to exhibit Christ-like behavior are things that nothing can rob from us. We can choose to not avail ourselves of them, but nothing can take them from us. No matter what this world does to you, this world cannot rob from you the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. And as long as God wills it to be so, and I believe God wills it to be so, because He said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. The precious, valuable gift and resource we have in the word of God is something tyrants have tried throughout history to destroy the word of God. But God made a promise to preserve His word, and He'll continue to do so. Hey, listen, even the local church, the gates of hell shall prevail, or it shall shall not prevail against it. The things in life that matter the most are things that cannot be lost. Let me give you one final thing and I'm done. Look at verse 30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also called. Whom he called, then he also justified. Whom he justified, then he also glorified. Let me say that to maintain our joy in the Lord, we ought to remember the providence of God and the permanence of spiritual things that God has granted us, but we ought to remember the plan of God relative to our lives. Now it's interesting because these things that are mentioned, these four things, predestinate, called, justified, glorified, are all mentioned in the past tense. And that's not by accident. Nothing in the Word of God is by accident. But we recognize that right now we do not exist in a glorified state. If this is as good as it gets, we're in trouble. Somebody say amen to that. Don't tell me i got to spend eternity in this body. Somebody say amen to that. I jotted this down. Uh, not only do we need to remember that our worst things turn out for good, and our good things, our great things, our best things can't be lost, but we also need to remember that our best things are yet to come. God has a plan for every single believer. And these four things lay out this plan. I'd remind you of this that there is both a practical and a positional aspect to every truth relative to Christ's working in the lives of the believers. To me, the clearest example is sanctification. The Bible says we have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. In fact, the Bible says uh, that we we have been uh, sanctified forever in Jesus Christ, the Hebrews writer said. Now, sanctification means both to cleanse and to set something apart. The Bible says Christ Jesus is made unto us sanctification. And the Bible also makes clear that uh, God has has uh, performed an operation in our lives, spiritually speaking, such that we stand justified, righteous, cleansed, perfect in His eyes, judicially speaking. And yet we recognize that most of us don't live as sanctified as we ought to live or as we want to live. Positionally speaking... 
Our sanctification is something that is already a present reality judicially in the eyes of God. God treats us as sanctified people. Practically speaking, we need to ever pursue the idea of sanctification and the goal of it. This is what Paul was talking about when he said, not as though I were already perfect, but I follow after. I'm not perfect, but I'm trying to become as much like Jesus as I can day by day. And he recognizes that one day, though, the practical and the positional are going to become the same reality. When will that happen? When our vile body is made like unto his glorious body. You ain't never going to be sinless on this side of glory. But you can be guaranteed of this, you ain't going to take no sin with you on that side of glory. You'll be cleansed, you'll be perfected. I would say this, two simple thoughts here. Look at the precedent that God has exhibited. The Bible says those that were predestinated. Now again, he's not talking about lost sinners here. And again, that's that's part of the problem. The Calvinist tries to take uh, terms like foreknowledge and predestination and apply them to the lost individual. Paul's not talking to lost people in Romans chapter number 8. He's talking to sons of God. And he's saying those that are sons of God have been predestinated. And those that have been predestinated have been called. Called what? Not called to believe on Jesus Christ. Because before they was ever predestinated, they had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. But called out from among this world to live in righteousness. The Bible says, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Paul would later on say in the book of Ephesians that we are to walk worthy of, of the vocation wherewith we are called. Called to holy living, to righteousness, to walking in the power of the Spirit of God. And those that have accepted and heeded that calling have been justified. God has vindicated that pursuit in their life and set them in a right position with Him, practically speaking. God has blessed them with His favor. And then beyond that, those that have been justified have been glorified. They call you about your extended car warranty. Have been glorified. God is bringing, is eliciting glory out of our lives. So in other words, there's a precedent... I don't ever use this word progressive, (laughs) but it does apply here. There has been a progressive working of God in our life as we have yielded to Him. You know what that tells me? This train is going somewhere. God's got a plan for our life. God didn't just save us to, to bench us and to ignore us. God saved us that He might lead us along a path of righteousness. I see the precedent that God has exhibited But I notice with this that there is a promise that God has expressed. That one day all of these things that God is doing in our life now will find culmination and realization in the presence and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the best things in life are yet to come. Has it ever dawned on you? We look around at this world and we say, man, this world is getting so bad. We look at our life and we say, man, things have gone so sideways. Don't you know this is the worst that it gets? This life is. Paul said, I reckon that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared. We spend all of our time wallowing in the sufferings of this present world and looking at our present situation. Paul says they're not even worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us. He said (laughs) that, that our light affliction, which is but for a moment, what we're dealing with now is but for a moment. 
When we live focused on this world. I remember, listen, I remember being a kid. I don't have time for this story. Anybody got five more minutes for me? Raise your hand. Anybody all right if I take five more minutes? Five, ten, fifteen, three. I do that. Why do y'all do? Y'all are, y'all are just patronizing me. You're indulging me. I remember being a kid and, and operating. Time seems so slow. It did. It seems so slow. Your parents say, hey, next week you're out of school. That next week was years and years. But now, man, time just... And those of you that have got maybe a couple more miles down the road than me, you say it only gets worse. This is just a moment, Paul said. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far greater, far more exceeding, Eternal weight of glory. Man, don't get discouraged. We got heaven ahead of us. Don't get discouraged. The best things are still awaiting us on the other side of glory. Don't let this world rob you of your joy. Don't let the weariness of, of life, of being sick, of having bills, of, of dealing with the, the, the challenges and obstacles and, and responsibilities of daily life. Don't let the warfare of the devil trying to disrupt and derail your serving God. Listen, I know it's hard, but don't let it rob you of your joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Rest in these truths. And just remember, at the end of this thing, we're on the winning side.